Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Hi, I'm Caroline Weber. And I'm Uli Bear. Welcome to the Proust Questionnaire. Two French words in a row, Proust Questionnaire. What is this really about? <laughs> the Proust Questionnaire is a list of 35 questions that the French novelist Marcel Proust answered twice when he was a teenager, and it's since become famous as a shorthand for finding out how creative people think. First one is, what is your idea of perfect happiness? And the second one is, what are you afraid of? And then it goes down the list and to pose these questions to creative people in the broadest sense. A lot of people who are putting something new into the world and whether it's a novel, a painting, photography, film, or activism, science, philanthropy. For us, I think it's just a pretext to get to have some interesting conversations with interesting people. And for me, what's really been beautiful to do this with you is when we're listening to people, um, I always listen and think, what do people actually think about and what moves them? What are their values and priorities who do such amazing things? It's also a great parlor trick for your first date. Even if you go through the first five questions and you, you can find out something and it's also a great thing to do with someone you've been with for a very long time because you may still discover things you didn't really know. I think that's right. Yeah, my husband is one of the people that we interviewed and some of his answers really surprised me and I loved getting to hear what he had to say. This should generate more conversations. I mean, we're both teachers and we love literature and the arts, but also to uh, change the world for the better in some ways. So take these questions, think about what people we found interesting, said in response, and then respond to it yourself. So welcome to our show. Hi, Caroline. Um, good to see you on Zoom today. Good to see you on Zoom. I don't like seeing my own face on Zoom, but I like seeing you. So the show that we have today, the episode, we're thrilled about somebody who's curated four bookstores in New York City where we live, um, places that we love, which are independent bookstores. So uh, Sarah McNally, who you both of us have met but don't know all that well, runs and has founded McNally Jackson Bookstores, which are the independent bookstores, one of the few kind of outposts of independent bookselling and not drowned out by the great white river of Amazon. <laughs> Yeah. And yeah, no, it's amazing that she, I guess, comes from a, a family of independent booksellers in uh, Winnipeg, Canada. Her parents also uh, founded a, a chain of independent bookstores in Canada. And you're right, it's absolutely kind of against what we perceive the cultural current and the commercial current in this country to be, which is that everything is going to Amazon and to have these fantastic uh, independent bookstores 
in Brooklyn and in downtown Manhattan uh, has really been a gift for, for book lovers. There's also a stationery store on East uh, 8th Street that she founded. That's And every time I walk by there, I go by there every day on my way to the subway to work. It's always full of people buying fountain pens and beautiful notebooks and beautiful papers. So she's really uh, created these very special spaces in New York City. And of all the people that we've asked to talk to us, she was maybe the one I was the most nervous to ask and the most excited when she said yes, because we don't know her, but I admire so much what she's done and what she's given to the city. I mean, going into McNally Jackson is sort of being exposed to uh, what people can imagine the world to be. The range of books is just such a diverse and multivaried kind of panoply of, of opinions, of thoughts, of words. And McNally Jackson, of course, is on Twitter, so it's MC. Nelly Jackson in one word, um, and uh, people should follow them, of course. They also run book clubs, they do virtual readings, etc. A lot of events that have kept on going during the pandemic, and I'm really interested to hear how an independent small business owner, a woman who runs these bookshops, has dealt in this time right now under lockdown. So I think we'll hear a bit about that as well. Yeah, I look forward to it. She wrote a really interesting article in the New York Times recently about uh, running a bookstore during this pandemic, during this lockdown. And um, one of the things that comes through, I think, in that piece in the New York Times is also that uh, Sarah McNally is a very thoughtful, very uh, intelligent uh, person with a real uh, way with words. So I think she'll be fun to talk to. I mean, she's somebody that I'm almost surprised that she hasn't written a book yet. Maybe one day she'll write her memoirs or, or do something else. But the way that she wrote about um, being a small business owner during this pandemic and this lockdown in New York City in the New York Times was a really, really moving uh, piece of prose. That's right. And then you can find us as well for listeners who are just joining the show or seeing this, hearing this episode for the first time. So you are Caroline Weber 2020. So Caroline Weber, one word, 2020 numerals on Instagram. We have post.questionnaire on Instagram. I am Uli NYC. It's U-L-I-N-Y-C. And I'm also on Twitter as Uli Bear. So please follow us um, and you can find out more about new episodes, different episodes in the bios on our Instagram, of course. And also on our website, PruceQuestionnaire.com. That's right. Okay, great. Let's go. Welcome, Sarah. It's really nice to see you, uh, Sarah McNally, here on Zoom today. Hi, nice to see you both too. Thank you for being here. We're going to jump right into the Proust questionnaire. And the first question is, Sarah, what is your idea of perfect happiness? This is, uh, the first question is my least favorite question in the whole Proust questionnaire, I think. And it's also the idea that's sort of most either anti-Proust or sneakily proves Proust's point. It's like you could read In Search for Lost Time sort of as a book about how little we can know our own desires about how shallowly our mind can penetrate our heart and what it really wants. So when I think, like when I start thinking about what my idea of perfect happiness is, it's like almost every idea I have is totally chimerical. It, like I get something that's sort of based off of movies I saw when I was little that actually have no relation with anything that I actually try and achieve or get in my life. Like when I really, I've been thinking about this question, I sort of closed my eyes and I got this kind of corny vision of myself sort of maybe on the top of a mountain, like in sort of a kind of like an oil painting that you might find in a rubbish sale, me just standing there. Maybe there's a man at my side, sort of a perfect man, not really individuated, more like a Holy Spirit type of 
man. And then I look at my actual life and I like, I rarely hike or find myself on the top of a mountain. It happens almost never. <laughs> I like have commitment problems in relationships. So if I hike, it's like with my dog or my, <laughs> or my son. And so it's, it's sort of, it's sort of, yeah, it's sort of absurd. Like I do sometimes, like often people, like if you, my friends will call me and they'll ask how I am and I'll say like, I'm at peak happiness. Like I do often feel like any more, if I was any happier, it would be redundant. I'm incapable of experiencing more happiness than I experience. But it's always a kind of like mundane moments. Like it happens like halfway through building a bookstore. Sometimes I get, I really hit peak happiness. Like when I, it's all still in my mind and it's not quite realized. And I think that maybe this bookstore will be like as beautiful as the Taj Mahal. I always think that, that maybe it really will be. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. your bookstores are. Yeah. Oh yeah. Right Taj Mahal. Yeah. <laughs> Anyhow, so there, there are moments, but my, when I think about, when I try and actually conjure up an idea, it's always it's sort of like, I'm happy. Yeah. But I love this image of halfway, halfway down building a bookstore. That, that I actually can, I like that, I like that image. Yeah, the mania of creation. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, I mean, I feel like every element of your answer is, uh, bespeaks a, a real engagement too, and, and uh, love for Proust, who I know is, um, is one of the writers that you love. And um, just this idea too, that the tension between this kind of, phantasmic happiness and this image of happiness that's abstract and that has no nothing to do with your day-to-day -day life and then these moments that are not romantic in that way but um where you feel peak happiness for no particular reason like the the narrator i'm thinking in in search of lost time when the narrator just sees some trees while he's on a drive around the country and those just that sight of those trees fills him with this sense of with the mania of creation. He wants to be able to then put it into words and, and can't at that stage in the book. But, but this idea that, yeah, you can find happiness in these moments that aren't the ones that we would extract from a, a movie uh, or, a, or a painting and, um, and treasure them. But peak happiness too, is that, so that, do you use that in other connections besides halfway through building a bookstore? Yeah, I mean, I often hit peak happiness just while like sitting with my dog and <laughs> her incredibly noble spirit. I often hit peak happiness with my son, although admittedly less and less as he, as adolescence sort of enters <laughs> his and my life, I hit peak, peak happiness far less. There used, that used to be something that happened a lot. Like you can really, you can make a kid so happy and then you can sort of enter the kid's world after having conjured the happiness and the kid has to cre create it. And then you could, that those have been peak happiness. Sometimes I just like, you, we're all neighbors and sometimes living in this neighborhood, I'll just leave my apartment and within two blocks, I'll see like four or five people who I know and really like. And I, I feel like I'm so happy to just sort of be caught in time and space, which often feels oppressive, but at certain moments, there's nowhere in time and space you'd rather be. And, and then by the time I get to work, I can feel truly at peak happiness. Yeah. What about you? What is, uh, oh. For us. <laughs> number two, going not going there yet. Okay. <laughs> yeah. um, what is your greatest fear, Sarah? Okay, so I don't like I don't have a lot of fear. It's not like I'm a I'm kind of a madly optimistic person, which hasn't yet really blown up in my face. I think it's why I have so many bookstores. Is I just I don't I don't worry about what might go wrong. I just get excited about what might go right. But I do have. 
I do have these moments when I'm seized by fear and I don't think it's anxiety and it's certainly not a panic attack. It's true fear. And it, it happens usually weirdly in the shower. I don't know why. I think it might be because right before I get in the shower, I see a candle for my grandmother's funeral and my grandmother's life, I think is a kind of a symbol of what I fear. But sometimes, sometimes I stop and I, my body keeps going and my hands keep moving and I'm getting the shampoo and I'm getting the conditioner and I'm moving like an automaton, but I'm in a tumult of fear and I just feel so terrified that this is it, that this is all life is. And that's why I think my grandmother's candle might fuel it is that she was somebody who was so worried about convention and what people might think of her. And then that was her life and she died and she doesn't get a second act and it's so agonizing. And sometimes I just, yeah, that feeling that this is that this is all there is, like a tale told by an idiot, you know, sound and fury signifying nothing. And it's 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 terrifying. But my only solace in it is what I always come back to is books. I mean, for books, books are my art. Mm. Um, I mean, but I think any artist can kind of break that fourth wall into something that feels more than simple mortality. And but yeah, that that would be that's my great fair fear that is my greatest fear i think is just sometimes when it feels the when you start feeling your own life is meaningless and then by transitive property almost every other life becomes meaningless and then it's it's unbearable it's unbearable and you have to kind of dive back into the story and the narrative of your life to kind of fend off to fend off that feeling so i, I suppose that what is the trait you most deplore in yourself Oh, don't know. I was going to talk about in that last question. I was going to talk about Magic Mountain. That's right. Magic Mountain oh. is the scariest book I have ever read. And for that reason, Magic Mountain is it's the most terrifying book I have ever read, for sure. Because like Hans Castorp is all of us. And then, yeah, in the end, he just dies. Okay. Sitting um, <laughs> on that mountain while the war begins below, kind of that also he's sort of removed and then not removed from the world. But there is no removal from the world, right? He's in the sanatorium for so long, but then the war is starting to... Mm -hmm. in the valley and in a way like we're all in a sanatorium yeah <laughs> we've all sort of shut our lives into this little story and we're all right now yes that's that's yeah. what, that's what i find so terrifying about it yeah okay so what trait do i most deplore in myself before the quarantine i would have said that the trait i most deplore in myself is my mania because i do get i do take on too much and do too much in a kind of manic way but during the quarantine, I feel so not manic. I feel like almost half asleep all the time. So now I kind of miss my mania. I wish it would like come back and rouse me a little. And in the quarantine, I, was, I read um, The Decameron. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. And reading it, I realized that the thing I really most deplore about myself is sort of my petit bourgeois values. <laughs> Like looking at these women in 1348 Florence and they they didn't have the freedoms that like I do have I mean they they were yeah. daughters then wives but at the same time like if they found themselves in need of a lover maybe their husband just wasn't like finding himself up to the job they would just go out on the town look around walk the streets choose the most well-formed man with the noblest mind and sort of stare at him enough in public until he sort of got the idea <laughs> figure out a way <laughs> figure out a way to tell him when her husband would be out of town and when she he could climb into her bedroom. And I thought reading that, like I live in 2020 and I've never done anything like that. And even worse, I've never even thought of doing something like that. <laughs> this, this is why we read great books so that the camera can give you an idea of how to live your life. 
that's good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. With a little more, with a little more like real self-determination. <laughs> yeah. What is, what is the trait you most deplore in others? The trait I most deplore in others would be earnestness. I think I really dislike earnestness because there's just so many truths. There are so many things that are true. You kind of have to move lightly between them. Yeah. But yeah, there's, um, I'm again thinking about uh, Proust and how one of the characteristics that I love in Swan is the fact that he's so, he's got such tact in everything that even when he's saying something that's true, he sometimes puts little scare quotes around it so he doesn't seem like he's being too earnest, like talking to aristocrats, oh, well, yes, of course, one of your ancestors. <laughs> and <laughs> it's true that those are their ancestors, but he doesn't want to seem kind of uh, like he's hitting them over the head with his earnestness. Do you, do you find yourself in that kind of Swanian position where you, you try to take a step back from your own sincerity somehow or? I wish, I wish, I hope so. I, I aspire to that, certainly. Yeah. Which living person do you most admire? Okay, leaving be okay, this my answer to this one leaves behind literature because I guess that's not true. My answer to this is Brian Stevenson for sure, flat out. I can't even yeah. it, that, that's yeah. not a hard answer for me. I think I admire him more than any other. And I think it's not a literary answer, but then I really got to know him through his book, Just Mercy. And I think it was even his introduction. I hadn't ever in my life really thought of mercy. I mean, the concept of mercy was something I hadn't much thought of until he put it in my mind. And even that was a gift, but yeah, I'm, he's, he's extraordinary, compassion. Yeah. I think his name is uh, before, right, Uli? You're, we're, yep. we've had, we have some other fans of, of his and- That's right. He's come up several times actually, yeah. That's yeah. Right. Yeah, I think he's in all of America. It's funny, I always thought in America, I thought, who would I most want to be president in all of America? And I thought, oh, there's just no question. Brian Stevens. <laughs> Brian Stevens. He's the, he's the greatest hero, I think, in our country of this time. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. He, and he, you know, if you ever meet him and speak to him, he does behave a little bit like Swan, a little bit, but he's, but, huh. his, but his concerns are clearly far more... Um, interesting and moral and deep. I mean, Swan ultimately fritters away his life, whereas yeah. Brian Stevenson is, yeah. Yeah, and I think it's probably hard to, to be entirely ironic and tactful and wry about really, you know, issue, issues that one really feels passionate about too. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I don't know, but yeah, it's interesting to try to imagine uh, Brian Stevenson having any element of Swan because of the triviality of Swan's life and the absolute kind of urgency and inspiring model that uh, Stevenson sets. But, but you know when you meet somebody who has thought so much about a subject and read so much about a subject that they, they see so many sides of it all at once that they don't, they don't have to dwell or beat you over the head with it. It's, it's, it's when you spend time with very young people who are newly invigorated on the idea of justice, they're the ones who are going to yell at you. It's not the people who've really thought their way around the yeah. Yeah. around the issue. Yeah. Uli, are you finding that in your class now? Because Uli's teaching a summer set of summer courses at NYU and, and they're really, you're trying to engage with what's happening right now. Are you finding some of that? I completely accidentally designed this class and we're reading uh, the history of first, the first 
African-American short story, the first African-American woman who published a poem, the first Asian-American short story published in America. So everything is the first to claim the space for oneself so others can speak. So we read Phyllis Wheatley, Frederick Douglass, Paul Lawrence Dunbar, Langston News completely accidentally, but now we're reading Frederick Douglass and it sounds like he wrote that this morning. And we're reading The Insistence by Frances Harper or something, a free woman from Baltimore who writes about um, self-representation and what presentation, what presentation means culturally when you have your legal rights, but you're not culturally accepted. So everything ties in and they're really ready to understand there's been a record of all of this for 200 years and white America has willfully ignored it. So I said, this is all the literature of America. How come this is not what many of us read in high school or college? So they said, it's all here. It's all in front of us. It, and so I'm trying to teach them, how do you not remove yourself from these stories? How do you actually feel addressed? So it's really interesting that the young, I think they're very much trying to find a way to actually make sense of this. So people like Brian Stevenson are really a guide for them to make sense of it. Because as you're, you're saying, right, they're, they're angry. They're very frustrated. And they, I think they have every right to be angry <laughs> at our generation. So in some ways, sort of to keep them in conversation and keep them say, okay, how can you channel your anger into something productive? Yeah, we really, I mean, our generation, in some ways, the boomers really didn't, didn't hand us a terrific world. They handed us the world that they, that was, but we have done a lot to protect the status quo. Yeah, yeah, right, right. Perhaps on that subject, what is your greatest extravagance? Oh, that's easy. My greatest extravagance is my dumb apartment. Okay. <laughs> sure. <laughs> dumb apartment. My dumb apartment. When I when I moved to New York in I think it was the summer of '99, summer of '90. It was maybe I think it was summer of '99, and I lived in an NYU dorm because they're really really cheap in the summer. I lived in Reuben Hall, which is on Fifth Avenue, by Tenth Street, oh. and I ate in Washington Square Park in the dining hall. And there's something it just imprinted on me. This neighborhood just imprinted on me like the platonic form of New York. And I just, I don't know, I had to, I worked my way. It took me 20 years or 15 years to be able to afford it, but I worked my way. I worked my way back here. Yeah. Uh, what is your current state of mind? Hmm. Well, I confess my current state of mind. So I have been working like, madly hard it's running a shop during a quarantine it sounds like it should be sort of easy because it's just closed <laughs> <Or could> be... <laughs> but, but it's actually been because just trying to become we had to become an online bookstore which was not something that we were before so it was sort of like starting an entirely new company and putting in place entirely new systems and it was exhausting and now we have to become a curbside pickup business which again is an entirely new business and almost everything that we're doing is like starting a new company with a completely new set of systems for people for the computers for the, it's so i've been working very hard and i'm also a single mother managing um homeschooling so i think I would say my state of mind at this exact moment talking to you just even talking and thinking about myself i'm like, <laughs> I'm like elated it's about you exactly <laughs> it feels it feels terrific sometimes you can just sort of drift into the ether of your life you know, was it like, was it thoreau that wrote human beings are not expedient yes yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's nice to feel inexpedient for a moment yeah what do you consider the most overrated virtue i think all the virtues sound really really great um the only virtue that i is completely foreign to me both and it's it's one of the it's one of the virtues too that overlaps from aristotelian virtues and christian virtues is temperance 
-hmm. And I'm not temperate even remotely, so I think it, it may well be overrated. I can't speak from experience. But I <laughs> Uh, on what occasion do you lie? What occasion do I lie? I lie very easily to be nice. It sort of comes very, very easily to me. I, I think I come from Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, and Winnipeg people are really, really nice. They lie without even realize they're lying. That's one thing, going back and visiting, I realized that people are lying to me all the time without even knowing they're lying. Their instinct to be nice, it, it's, it just sweeps away any other moral code. And so I still have less of it certainly than I did, you know, when I arrived here 15 years ago or 20 years ago, but, um, but yeah. What do you most dislike about your appearance? Okay, again, I don't want to keep bringing up quarantine, but... <laughs> it's hard not to, though. I think it's such a strange time. It's such a huge part of quarantine is Zoom. It's just seeing yeah. yourself all the time. And I realized that my whole relationship with my appearance, like pre-quarantine, was like you get yourself to a state where you feel ready to leave the house. You think, okay, this is, this is just good enough. This is fine. And then you sort of feel like you look that way all day. Yes. And then eventually you get tired, go to bed, and then start again the next day. But because of Zoom, you actually... <laughs> the lid is sort of blown off. You actually see yourself all day. Like I had no idea that I had. I really didn't know how many wrinkles I had before quarantine. Because like I don't, I don't move my face in the mirror. You just, you don't, you don't see the, whatever they call the, the things on your. You don't see them because you don't. Move. Yeah. Oh, it's so true. It is. I hadn't thought about that. I hate. Uh, we're grateful to you for doing Zoom with us, and that's the way that we get to talk to people right now. But. I'm with you. The idea that you have to kind of look at your own face all day long instead of while you're brushing your teeth, that's brushing it. your hair, thinking, okay, that's about good enough for the day. And then, yeah, but to see your face in motion all day too, it, I, I don't know. I wonder if it's instilling more self-consciousness in a younger generation of people. I mean, I think I kind of feel like it's too late to care how my face looks when, I, when it's moving. So I can't change it now, but I don't know. How is your son... Is he zooming a lot, or when you're doing like homeschooling, is that in, does that involve FaceTime for him with people from his school? Yeah, they do it all day. They do it yeah. all day long. They're just talking, talking, talking on the computer. It, yeah, I'm not sure. It's better than nothing, and that's what I think we can all say about this time: is that the yeah. FaceTiming or the zooming or whatever you're doing is it's a hell of a lot better than nothing. Right. Yeah. Which living person do you most despise? I don't really despise anybody. I couldn't think, I mean, there's some really obvious people. Like, do I despise Trump? I don't think I despise Trump. That's not really, that's not the emotion that he inspires. I may, don't know how to, how do you pronounce his name? Some Bolsonaro, 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 the yeah. president of Brazil. Yeah. I don't, I think I despise him more than anybody just because of what he's doing to the rainforest. Mm -hmm. It seems something like you kind of, I'm very sympathetic that everybody's sort of caught in their own narrative. And it's very, very, very hard to think your way out of your own narrative. I mean, I, it takes almost a genius to think your way out of the narrative. And mm -hmm. but there's sometimes that someone's impact is so outsized that you can, I can rouse myself to hatred or, and I think he may be the one also know, but it's not personal. <laughs> The next two questions are really gendered because this dates back to the late 19th century. What is the quality you most like in a man? Oh, can I just do the same for man and woman? Because I, I, think it is, I really think it is the same. Although perhaps it's not. Perhaps I'm just lying to myself. 
Yeah, it's possible I'm lying to myself because I do, my female friends, I do, I do look for a complicity. I look at, no, that's not the right word. With my female friends, I do look for a, a sort of shared experience that makes us feel sort of of a tribe, which I don't necessarily look for in men. But um, the quality I most like in both men and women would be sort of quickness. I really like quickness. That's why I moved to New York is when I came here, I remember when I was in university and I drove down from, I went to McGill and, and I drove down from Montreal and I remember I ordered a hot dog at a hot dog cart and the hot dog vendor spoke so quickly and I was like, I'm moving there. <laughs> <laughs> and I do sort of love the quickness of wit, quick. Okay, I'll give you back your computer. Okay, Jasper, go, it's being recorded. Um, sorry, <laughs> <laughs> my son is just wondering when he could have his computer back. Okay, yeah. Oh yeah, um, yeah, quickness of wit, like quickness of, quickness of wit, quickness of, comprehension, quickness to sort of understand all angles. I love quickness. Which words or phrases do you most overuse? Okay, so I asked Peter Mendelssohn which phrase I most overuse. I thought, because it's hard to know yourself, I think. And he said, um, elegant. He said, I call people very elegant. It's something that I do again and again. And it's funny, when you mentioned swan, like swan is very, very elegant. I don't mean elegant in dress. It's not yeah. an aesthetic thing. It's more like elegance of mind, like that ability. Yeah. When someone really has, you need, a, you need to have done, you need to be very smart and have done a lot of thinking and yeah. reading about a subject in order to be elegant about it. But that, it kind of ties in again with the earnestness that we were talking about yeah. before, just the deafness, the deafness of mind, which I, I call elegance of mind. And I think I overuse it because probably no one knows what I mean. Every time I say that someone's elegant, they probably assume I'm talking about their clothes. Right. Um, what are who is the greatest love of your life? I can't believe people answer this question in public. The greatest. <laughs> when we interviewed my husband, I said, let's just assume that you're not going to say me because it will be more interesting to hear something other than the obvious pressure imposing answer. I'm like, what is love? I don't even, I'm not even sure. I mean, <laughs> like, when I think like the greatest love of my life, I mean, I guess I would, my ex husband is the person who I've opened my life to more than anyone other than my son. And I really loved him, but then now he's sort of like a co-parent who, it's almost like a cousin or something, like a cousin. We're kind of like family, but not sister brother. We're, right. yeah, like cousins. So it seems like if that's the greatest love of my life, that's a very sad end of that story. Um, but so then I would think maybe my sister is maybe the greatest love of my life, because sort of in like the constellation of my life, her soul is the closest to me, I think, in always will be. But then when I think about that, I think she would never say that I'm the greatest love of her life. <laughs> <laughs> There's been probably huge stretches where she's at best ambivalent towards me. So I'm not really sure I should say that. So then I kind of come pathetically around to, I guess, my son, but I don't even really know what that means. Because like my son, when he was a baby, my son, when he was a little kid, like that, that love is so pretty. And that I, it's hard to even put a finger on what it is. And also there's I'm sure a healthy dose of narcissism in any parental mm -hmm. love. So this question sort of depresses me. I don't know what to say. <laughs> when and where were you happiest? Back to this question of happiness. This one's sort of easy because I think, you know, in those, you know, you have a, those moments in life where you put a pin in it and you say, 
this is the happiest moment of my life and you just and you remember it you earmarked yeah. I had a moment on it was on Christmas day probably about eight seven eight years ago and my son at the time really believed in Santa Claus he believed so hard in Santa Claus we talked about Santa all the time and the elves mm -hmm. and I bought him a, some chocolate at Dean and DeLuca for his stocking and we were eating the chocolate from his stocking and it was so good. And I said to him, I was like, God, Santa's elves make the best chocolate. And when I said it, I believed it. I, even though I had bought nice. <laughs> the chocolate myself, I, I, I so entered that world of fantasy and it was, yeah, it was, it was a beautiful, that was a beautiful day, time. That is wonderful. So yeah, you had a, uh, a brief trip back to that kind of childhood world where Santa and his elves are real. And yeah, then what's not to be happy about? That's amazing. Um, which talent would you most like to have? Gymnastics, for sure. Gymnastics. Yeah. I think that would be better, better than flying. Because it's kind of like flying, I guess. Would you, are, are you thinking bars or horse or balance beam or what, or all of it? Maybe mat. Yeah, flips. Yeah. Yeah. Flips, flips, like really amazing flips, like triple axles. Yeah, I like that too. Yeah. yeah, that's impressive. If you could change one thing about yourself, what would it be? I don't know. I think I wouldn't be so headlong. I, I, I would think more before I acted. Although if I did change that about myself, nothing that I've actually accomplished, I wouldn't have accomplished anything in my life because I haven't done anything that made sense. I mean, opening a bookstore was stupid. Opening a second bookstore, kind of stupid. Opening a stationary store, like who does that? Opening a second stationary store, opening a third, it just, none of it makes sense. Having a, but, so, but still, I think I'd like to be somebody who, who weighed options more before flinging myself in. What do you consider your greatest achievement? Um, I think that the thing I'm most proud of is making these spaces in New York City that I'm sort of the custodian of, but that I'm not part of, that I don't really own. Like when you, if you have a bookstore, it's sort of like, it belongs to booksellers, to strangers, to people who used to live in New York once, to visitors, to people who live in New York and come all the time. And it, it becomes almost like you're adding this, the way I think of my stores, I almost think it's like we've got, okay, so we have our layer of street reality and that when you walk into certain spaces, bookstores, I think especially, but sometimes the same thing can happen in like a restaurant or a bar that has a lot of history and you know Dylan Thomas drank there, whatever it might be. You can sometimes feel that, you're, that the space itself is like a window to the infinite somehow, that you're walking into something. And I feel like I've made spaces that are that to people that have been like almost like wormholes into into the infinite that, that are public, that are just completely public. And I feel like that was, that's been a great gift that I've given to the city that I love. And I think that is what I am most proud of. That's maybe the only thing I'm actually really proud of. <laughs> it's not even a, well, there's a silver medalist. <laughs> but it's a big, huge thing. It's a big, huge thing. So I, I'm glad that you, I'm, I'm glad that you talked about that. I mean, Willie and I both were your neighbors and, uh, those stores are such amazing places to go. I was, I remember being really thrilled when you opened your stationary store on 8th Street just to see, and I, I walk past it every day on my way to the subway when I'm, when I'm teaching uptown. And every time I walk past it, if it's open, sometimes it's the morning before it's open, it is full. 
it is full. People looking at pens and paper and in this digital age, it just, it's so thrilling as a writer of a different, you know, an older now generation to see that people are still that drawn to the, the kind of infinite possibility too of, of reading and writing is a, is a beautiful thing. So. Yeah, and writing, I mean, it's really letting people sort of engage more with their process. It's really, I mean, I believe in the, it, the mission of that store on the surface of it doesn't seem that deep, but it really is another angle in to kind of encourage the life of the mind in the city. Because we don't sell like gifts or tchotchkes. It's very, it's a serious stationery store. Yeah, we've, a few of the writers we've spoken to have identified a particular pen or set of pens as their most treasured possessions and at both, I think at least two different writers, I'll send you the names later, but um, I remember both times thinking, I've got to get down to that stationery <laughs> store on 8th Street and buy myself a better pen. Maybe I'd be a better writer with a better pen, so. It's true, you can get a really, you can really up your pen game for less than $10. Actually, um, Maza Mengista, Ethiopian novelist, she talked about her pens, her fountain pens. She sets her extravagance. And Daniel Kilman, a German novelist, he has one pen that he's written every novel with. And he said now he thinks the Mont Blanc, the gold tip, it has adjusted to the way he holds it. So he said it's actually his personalized pen. The metal has actually moved a tiny little bit over the last 30 or some years. And he writes every, they both write everything by hand. Everything is in long hand. So it was kind of nice. The two of them talked about their fountain pens. And Maza said, she has some fountain pens, very, very inexpensive, but they mean a great deal to her. It's not about the money, it's actually that this pen allowed her to write, and she's now published her second novel, which is an amazing novel. And so it was kind of nice to hear what these things mean to people. Two things. One, it's really interesting fountain pen use, like in the Commonwealth. Like yeah. Some of our most, it's, it's interesting, some of our most loyal customers, fountain pen customers, come from the Commonwealth where they were, yeah. well, long after we kind of stopped using, like even in England, they stopped using fountain pens in their education and they kept in Commonwealth. And two, Daniel is absolutely right. The, a gold nib fountain pen, it does, it does adjust to how it does, Ben, you should, it's just like your parents told you never to let anyone wear your shoes because they'd break them in wrong or whatever. It's the right. same with fountain pen. It does adjust to the way you write and it does soften in certain ways. This pen is personalized. If you were to die and come back as a person or a thing, what or who would it be? Has anyone ever answered thing? Because like things aren't sentient. <laughs> I just, what would yes. it mean to be a thing? Well, anyhow, I would say, I mean, I think that's another easy one. That would be for me, Shakespeare, no question. Oh, <laughs> oh okay. Okay. I think that's a first for us on this questionnaire. So really? you'd be Shakespeare, yeah, I, I, but I immediately get the logic. I'm annoyed, Uli and I have interviewed each other on these questions too. I'm annoyed I didn't think of that because yeah, what could be better? What could be more fun than being Shakespeare? Actually, to be honest with you, the <laughs> idea of having all these people in my head, to have so many characters in my head, I do, I'm not positive. So I, I respect your answer, but this would not be what I want to be. <laughs> too many characters in my head if I had that many voices in my head and made up my own language, my own English, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's an interesting, okay. <laughs> Gary, you have the next question. It would be sort of like being an acrobat, being Shakespeare, but just a mental. You're right, yeah. you're right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then, but then also, and I'm thinking you're much better qualified for this part of Shakespeare's life than like I would be, but also the business aspect of it, the idea that he was, running a theater, running a th theatrical troupe, kind of keeping all of that logistical and pragmatic um, material in mind 
while also generating these unbelievable stories in unbelievable language. It's, uh, yeah. it's staggering to think about all the different sides of his brain that had to be active and firing on all cylinders in order for him to keep it all afloat. But so fun. But, yeah. Oh gosh. Um, where would you most like to live? Well, I'm, I'm here. Yeah. What is your most treasured possession? Does a dog count? Yeah, well, yeah, absolutely. That would be, I think, all I would go for in a fire would be the dog. And then second, I think I have, the, my kind of weirdest, grossest possession, but maybe my favorite, is my grandfather's hearing aids. When he died, my uncle said, what do you want? And I said, I want all his hearing aids. And there were, there were so many more than I could possibly <laughs> have anticipated. I got dozens of hearing aids. <laughs> He was an engineer and he was always disappointed and frustrated and trying to upgrade and find a hearing aid that would actually work. But it's, I love, I love having them. It's, I love having them. And they're, so, they're weird. They're flesh colored. Yeah. Sort of blend in with the ear. So they are kind of gross looking, but you know, I love my grandfather so much. And for me, the, maybe those, or my son's baby clothes. I really like those too. Yes. Yeah, I just, I can't believe that happened. I can't believe I had. Someone so small. <laughs> yeah, who I right. love so much. It just, it's, it's unimaginable. Yeah. What do you regard as the lowest depth of misery? I don't know. I think that goes back again to like what the greatest fear is. Like I think the lowest depth of misery is like a is meaninglessness. It's just a feeling of meaninglessness. It's like, mm -hmm. yeah, there's no there's no solace for that. Yeah. What is your favorite occupation? I think writing, although I like never do it. I probably journal about six times a year only, but when I do it, I think it's the thing I most, in, it's so, it really is so fun. Yeah. You're lucky. Yeah. You're lucky well, woman. Would you, it's, I guess it's hard to imagine maybe you even having the time to think about this, but is that something you would ever want to do to devote more of your time to than the six times a year journaling? I mean, you're so articulate and you have such interesting ways of putting words together and thoughts together. I, I would love to see what you would do. Have you ever considered that? Or? This is what I'm going to do. There's going to be a time somewhere in my future where my life is going to sort of settle around me into orderly piles. It's going to be, I, I know it will happen within five or 10 years. And then I'm going to write a science fiction novel. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. This is still going. I really hope you'll come back to talk to us about that. That's so you're a science fiction fan or I read a little not a huge science fiction reader. I read some science fiction. Mm -hmm. But for me, the thought of writing anything other than science fiction feels a little silly. Because I mean I maybe because so many of my friends are novelists who are yeah, really writing about life around us. I, I wouldn't I would be ashamed to dabble into those waters. But science fiction, <laughs> you just make up your own world and write whatever dumb thing you want about it. I can tell you it's the most fun. I wrote a dystopian novel a few years ago. Um, and it's the most fun because you have to construct an entirely coherent world with different rules, but it has to be internally coherent. Mm -hmm. You actually, my most fun was to sit and think sometimes for a very long time to figure out one detail in that world that makes sense corresponding to all the other rules, which you're not stating. But there has to be this entire, it's so much fun. It's really a great thing to do. Yeah, you should, you should totally do it. You should start now also. Let's do it in the mornings. Yeah. <laughs> no, no time. What is your most marked characteristic? We think that means what do people notice about you when they meet you first? I talk way too much. I mean, you might have noticed already today. But, 
No, you but, don't have to answer. <laughs> but not at all. It's like totally no. fascinating to listen to you. It's actually a really different way of thinking. It's totally fascinating. But that's what people notice. Okay. What do you most value in your friends? No, I don't know what I most value. I, I mean, I have so many different sorts of friends for so many different sorts of moods and so many sorts of, it's hard to sort of make a, there's not a homogenous friend pool that I can really speak of. I mean, I have friends who are single mothers who are sort of part of my single mother, sort of not quite support group, but almost. I have friends who are so dazzlingly intelligent that I hardly speak around them. I just listen in delight. I have friends who we make each other, I, I, can't, I can't really answer that question. Because I, yeah, it, it's hot. I mean, when you're in New York, it's, um, and, if, and you're an immigrant, and you're in New York and you're an immigrant, you're, you don't have sort of a solid friend group that you've sort of lugged around with you from when you're young. It's sort of this scattershot, strange. I mean, certain friends picked up in certain moments when there was a, when you had similar life experiences and then something in your soul stayed twained. And then, uh, yeah, it, it, I, I can't answer that question, I'm sorry. This may be another one that's just so hard to, to answer. Uh, who are your favorite writers? You know, I didn't find that one that hard to answer, except that I, I, I thought of three, and then they're all men, and then I'm like, what the hell? But then it's the honest answer. They just happen to be all men, my favorites. Not that I don't, in any event, without further defense, I think Javier Marias, oh. I think Dostoevsky, and Bolaño. Really, okay. And all of them for completely different reasons, <laughs> completely different reasons. But if I was to be put on a desert island with those three, I'd, I'd be okay. Can you tell us the reasons for the three choices? Because they're such different. Yeah. yeah. Okay, well, Javier Marias, I may be pronouncing that wrong. I don't speak Spanish. Do you know Marias, Marias, Marias? I don't know. I would assume, Mar I've assumed Marias, but okay. really? I think so too, Marias, yeah. Yeah. Okay, Marius, if you read his sort of trilogy, the Your Face Tomorrow trilogy, in what it's, it was, it's one of, the, it's maybe the, maybe one of the greatest, if not the greatest reading experiences of my life. I don't know why exactly. There was something in it that, it's not dissimilar to Proust, but then, I mean, the problem with Proust, which actually your book has really helped, it, your, both, your book both made it better and worse for me, because I'm always rereading Proust, I'm always reading and rereading Proust, it's a constant circle. And one of my, yeah. and I think I, when I met you, I might've spoken to you about this, and but you were, about how frustrated I sometimes get with Proust's preoccupation with aristocracy. It's kind of yeah. tedious in society, and it's, yeah. and I think like, God, he wrote this after Victor Hugo, it's completely indefensible in a way, which is <laughs> That's a great way of phrasing it. Yeah. Um, and and your Marius, I mean, it's, it's sort of, it's, it's not, it's literally not about anything exactly except memory. It's, it's a much, it's, it's, it's so distilled in a strange way and it's very, nothing happens. It's three books. I mean, it, it makes Proust look like a, like a pot boiler. I mean, literally nothing happens. <laughs> There are 10 pages of plot in the middle of, I think, book two, in which there's this crazy scene in a bathroom with a sword. And other than that, <laughs> almost nothing happens. And, and yeah, I, don't, I don't know if it, it was, to, it was to me one of the most profound reading experiences of my life. So that's why him. Dostoevsky, because I mean, he's just the most fun. To me, he's the most fun of any, right? I mean, I, when you ask who I'd want to be, and I choose Shakespeare instead of Dostoevsky, I don't think I would have wanted to be Dostoevsky. Oh, yeah, that's a tough life. 
right? <laughs> but um, but yeah, but I find I find his writing just I, every time I return to it, it's, it's such a delight. And then um, Bolaño. Mm-hmm. Bolaño is also for the fun of it, I think. But in a, and it's a different sort of fun. It's a much more. I mean, his is Dostoevsky is is intellectually cartoonish and. Bolaño sort of soulfully cartoonish somehow. So I, I would say those three. And when I was growing up, when I was growing up, I think when I was young, it would have been, again, for the fun. I'm, see, I'm really so shallow. It would have probably been Vonnegut for the fun when I was younger. But That's great. No, I think I can totally understand that. Yeah. yeah. And, and Vonnegut also because of, I mean, when I read Vonnegut, I feel better about being a human. He elevates us. He elevates all of us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and not every great writer does that. Now that you mention it, you know, I think like Tolstoy does, and Proust does not, for instance. Um, Proust really uh, does. Proust <laughs> really doesn't. Uh. It's like I had a colleague uh, who once who sat down next to me at a, a dinner while I was working on my book on Proust and said, you know. It's great that you're working on Proust, but is it just me or are, or are all of his characters horrible? And I had to like, I stopped for a minute. I thought, yeah, they're all, they're all, you know, you walk away from Proust. I, I love that novel so much, but it's not a world where at least I go and feel elevated, except maybe at the very end when the narrator is coming to his own artistic vocation and, and finally crystallizing for himself what is actually important and what won't be a waste of time. But you're right about Vonnegut. Are there other authors you can think of who, who you turn to for that elevating? First, I want to go back a little bit to your book just for one second. Like when I read your book and I saw how the women who inspired these characters were so much better as people than the actual characters themselves, how interesting and redeemable and intelligent they were, if imperfect. And it was yeah. very, it was, it made Proust very hard to read for me for some time, just seeing how much he degraded these people in his fiction, but eventually got over it until when your second volume comes out, you're going to spoil my relationship with him again. Uh, all of, yeah. all of, I'm sorry. No, no, but uh, yeah, I do remember that that's what we were trying to talk about at a, um, at a book function at one of your mm -hmm. bookstores and um and i agree and it's a weird thing speaking of earnestness i think it's a it's a weird thing to sit down and say i'm gonna do something that improves on proust <laughs> and of course that's what i said but while i was learning about them i was kind of thinking gosh he could have given all of them a little bit more of a chance and there was a reason these were women in the aristocracy proust was not it was still a very kind of closed and hierarchical society he was a younger generation. There were all kinds of reasons why he couldn't get to know them well as people. And yet, as we know, and I mean, as you just mentioned about Vonnegut, there are plenty of great writers who are perfectly capable of imagining themselves into the mind of someone else in a very empathic and, and uh, life-enhancing way. And that wasn't Proust's chosen approach with these particular women, mm -hmm. uh, nor with a lot of others. Listening to you, Sarah, sort of talking about Carrie's book, I wonder whether this, he's drawing them into archetypes that universalize something. And in a way, if he kept the dimensions that Carrie's book sort of brings out, that there's kind of something you say, though imperfect, redeemable, that somehow the redeemable would take away the possibility of readers' infinite projection or allowing these characters to stand for something in them. 
mm. that, that, that if you connect to a character and you actually sort of feel that, so that the un irredeemable character, the irredeemable dimension of the Duchesse de Gamont or someone like that makes her also infinitely available to all readers. I just think there's something about these archetypes, like some books create characters that are not us at all, but they capture some dimension of us. I think that is true, but I think it also causes some flaws in the novel, like Madame mm -hmm. Verdurin. Mm -hmm. um, there's something that's not believable about mm -hmm. any, her having any friends as set up in the novel. <laughs> Because she's the worst. The worst. Yeah. <laughs> worst. Uh, I, uh, well, that will actually bring us to our next question because she paradoxically was uh, my answer for uh, the next one, which is who is your hero of fiction? <laughs> We've also had a television or film. Uh, she's so, she's so awful that I can't look away. It's like watching a car wreck of a human being. And I kind of, I used to hate her and now I love her, but who are you? Much more importantly, who are your heroes of and heroines, favorite protagonists in, in imaginary worlds? Hey, A, that's the craziest thing I've heard in years. <laughs> <laughs> that is the, the perverse side that motivated Caroline to write oh. an 800 page book. How else could you do that, oh right? Oh my God. Right. <laughs> right. And B, I really, I don't know how to answer this question. I don't know how to answer this question. I don't know what heroes, I don't know what it means. I, I'm so, so, for me, I just say, I realize it is so, it's so, it's so different from how I read. And your, if I had, if I had known that you were, your answer was so bonkers before going in. <laughs> <laughs> to think about it myself, perhaps I would have given myself wider berth to address it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not too late. Or just characters that you, I think it's a weirdly phrased question too. It's like, are there characters, which characters in fiction or film or television have grabbed you the most, have stayed with you the most? Is that a, a more productive way to frame the, the question? Hmm. Sorry, I, it's, it's so, it's, it's just, it's so different from how, I never read thinking of characters as people, I don't think. And I think that that's part of the, that's part of the problem is I, while I am able to suspend disbelief completely and read fiction, I don't think of them as mm. in, independent in a way that could, I, I don't, I don't, I don't even know how to describe why this question left me so blank. Cause I clearly the, I mean, the, the core of my life is reading. I should be able to think of a character or two, I think is really, really great. But um, yeah, it's funny when we were in, um, when I was in college, my friend group in college had this test where they would ask people who their favorite brother in the Brothers Karamazov was. Oh. And then that would be the sort of, that was sort of their Enneagram or <laughs> Myers-Briggs test. Yeah. Philosophy students. And it, even back then, the question didn't register with me. I remember I couldn't really do it. I was just about to ask, did you have an answer to that? But no. So, yeah, you've been consistent in your relationship to uh, these fictional worlds. Mm. Uh, Sarah, what are your favorite names? My favorite names? Oh, shoot. I left that one blank. I don't know. What are my favorite names? When I... When, I don't know. I, I like names that are, um, like my favorite name, the name I wanted to name my son was Sai, but I don't know why exactly. I just like the name Sai, but I don't, there's no real reason for it. It just, it comes out at me from so, there's so many men and women I've known named Sai who are beautiful, but it's not because of the name. 
what name do I like? My husband, my ex-husband wanted to name him Bison, which was really weird. That oh. Was, that's my least favorite name. Bison? <laughs> like Bison, like the animal Bison? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Jasper is beautiful. Was that the compromise then between Sai and Bison, basically? Yeah. The only name we both like. I liked it because it's sort of, it's pretty, but it's a boy's name. Yeah. yeah. I wish I hadn't left that question blank. It is sort of a fun one to think about. I mean, I like the idea. I like names that are actually named after virtues. I think that's beautiful. Like a temperance or prudence or those names, like they're kind of... Yeah. Yeah, and you see, and you see a, like a lot in the African-American community too, people naming really inspiring poetic names. Charity, destiny. Destiny. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Beautiful. I have a friend who um, was very interested in researching her family genealogy and she was from New England for a long time and she called me one day and said, I can't take it anymore. All of my female ancestors have the most depressing names because it was all like forbearance, <laughs> long-suffering endurance. I don't know, just like these sort of terrible names that implied already that just if you're born a girl, yeah. You better marshal a lot of, you better summon up a lot of forbearance because uh, life is going to be tough. But you're right, you can take it glass half full and say that that's very, very inspiring. Mm -hmm. um, I think we missed uh, one. Who are your heroes in real life? Heroes in real life? Oh, yeah, this was a weird question. Because again, I mean, the idea of like heroism, it's not really, it's not really relevant in real life in the same way that it's relevant. But the person who I thought, it's the least cool answer in the world, but I'd say it would be Dave Eggers, which I know is strange, oh. but I think, yeah, I think that he has, like, from quite a young age, he's grounded all of his work in morality. Yeah. He has created the rhythm of a life that is beautiful. He doesn't have a phone. He has only like a flip phone that he can't text on. He only emails once a day and he does serious work in a concerted effort to make a better world without kind of getting caught up with any of the drama and the noise. And I think it's, I think it's, I think he's beautiful. Yeah. Um, which historical figure do you most identify with from the past? Oh, this I probably shouldn't answer truthfully, but I couldn't, I mean, it was so true that I couldn't even think, you know when something is so true that you can't even think of the plan B, even though the plan A is sort of embarrassing, but the plan, but I mean, it's very clear to me right now that I've, for the last sort of my staff unionized last fall and it was, it was um, coming up to the, in the year, sort of 10 months or nine months before the unionization, suddenly I noticed my staff being incredibly nice to me, but incredibly nice. I'd walk into it, hi, Sarah, hi, Sarah. And I was like, wow, everyone's <laughs> always really happy to see me around here. And then realizing that in fact, it wasn't friendliness. It was, uh, it was, uh, it, was an, it was an effort at secrecy and it was completely disingenuous. And so since the fall, I think that I'd have to say Caesar Right when, like, right when he's like, eat two boots. <laughs> right with the knife in his back. Right at the very end. That would be the, that would be the one I most think of. And it's fine. Oh. The game's fine. Everything's fine. But it would just, having that sort of, that, de that depth of insincerity and actual um, oppositional d disguised as extreme friendliness was, yeah, I'd say Caesar at his death. Wow. Okay. What is it that you most dislike? Like most just like doing, but I think yeah, just the, the question is just what? So what, you know, phenomenal. Somebody answered recently, oh, this was kind of an unpleasant one, vomit. You know, I mean, <laughs> it, it, 
And presumably it's a what, so it's not a person, and we've already covered the fact that you don't really despise anyone. Um, but yeah, so what is it that you most dislike? Doing, encountering, crafting. sorry? I most just like crafting. It's my least favorite thing is crafting, I think. Like any repetitive, <laughs> I hate doing anything repetitive, any repetitive action, yeah. Okay, and that's just for yourself, or do you dislike like seeing other people crafting also, or the fact of them crafting? I come from a real family of crafters. My sister is just crafting oh. constantly. She's constantly sewing me new masks now and sending them to me. Oh. Yeah. Bless her. But that, yeah, drives me bonkers. What is your greatest regret? I regret very much that I have not been focused in my life, that I haven't actually made goals and worked towards them, that everything I've done has just been sort of a spontaneous impulse that I've followed. And I I think it would have been, I think it would be an interesting way to live to actually decide who and what you want to be and fight for it. I mean, that's the heroic temperament. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I guess my utter lack of heroism. <laughs> How would you most like to die? Okay, so I actually had a long conversation with this, with, about this with my mother at my grandmother's deathbed. And my grandmother, she, my maternal grandmother, she was in the hospital. And she wasn't really, she wasn't, I think she just was done. I think she was just done. And she went to the hospital and they basically just drugged her so that she wouldn't feel hungry until she died. And she just lay there and just kind of slowly, I guess, starved to death, was dehydrated while being completely unconscious. So she was at peace with no pain. And my mother thought this was just great. She was like, this is how I want to go. <laughs> just oh. drug me out. <laughs> drug me out. Maybe put a pillow over my head while I'm unconscious. This is how I want to go. <laughs> And I thought that was the craziest thing I'd ever heard. Like, and I thought, I thought when I want, I want to die thinking. Mm. What I want to do? I want to be dying thinking like crazy, thinking like I, yeah, thinking like mad. Um, Sarah, what is your motto? No, I definitely don't have a motto because I don't even have any goals. But I, it's funny I, when I read this question, I thought. Wow, that doesn't sound like me at all. But then I remembered I had an all staff Zoom two days ago and I finally was, people were being negative and I was like, okay, everybody, we need a cup. To, we need to accept that our new company motto is this, prepare for the best. Oh, nice. <laughs> all right. That's how I actually live. I do always prepare for the best. Yeah. That's, maybe your sister could, could craft that onto a mask or an inspirational like throw cushion or something that's that's wonderful um so sarah we've added one question to the original 35 uh which is who would you most like to hear answering the questions on this questionnaire ideally someone alive because maybe we could invite them but yeah who would you most like to hear answer these peter mendelson yeah no question. yeah i'll give you that's, his email address he's just, yeah if you don't mind we would love that and yeah we were talking before the recording about how he might uh, or did answer to you some of these questions. I think that would be a really fun conversation. So Sarah, thank you so much for taking time to do this with us. It was really, really wonderful. Pleasure. Yes, and thank you. And I'm actually, um, I took notes on your book recommendations besides Dostoevsky, so Javier Amit Maria. So I have to read that. I've never read the trilogy. I don't even know it. Honestly. Nor I. Yeah. So I'm gonna, so I'm gonna look at that. So the book that has less plot then in search of lost time, that sounds thrilling. Can't no characters. Can't wait. So, but I love that. This is actually the point that you gave us something totally new and unexpected to think about. Oh, good. Well, it was very nice talking to you both. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. 
But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.